Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 17th, 2021. Uh, a few months ago, I had the uh, literary Russian historian Vladimir Alexandrov on the show. He has a really interesting new book out about um, a Russian revolutionary called Boris Savinkov, one of the founders of um, the Russian uh, Peasant Party, uh, kind of an anarchist, a radical who eventually was killed by the Bolsheviks. Uh, and I asked Alexandrov, as I often do when I have Russian literary scholars on my show, uh, if they had to choose between Dostoevsky and Turgenev, which their choice would be in terms of relevance, particularly today. And um, Alexandrov's response was immediate. Dostoevsky, he preferred very much over, Tostie, uh, over uh, Turgenev and uh, certainly thinks that uh, Dostoevsky remains an incredibly important writer. Um, as it happens... Uh, last week was the 200th birthday of Dostoevsky's uh, birth. Uh, he was born on November the 11th, um, 1821. So he's very much in the news and all over Russia, at least according to the Moscow Times, uh, Dostoevsky's 200th birthday was celebrated, which speaks to the fact that Dostoevsky remains very relevant in Russia today. I somehow doubt that Turgenev's 200th birthday was celebrated so uh, explicitly in Russia. Also, as it happens, there's a really, really interesting new book out um, about Dostoevsky. I think it actually came out on uh, November the 11th uh, to celebrate Dostoevsky's 200th birthday. Um, the name of the book is The Sinner and the Saint. I kept on getting it the wrong way around. It's not The Saint and the Sinner. It's The Sinner and the Saint. I'm not sure why the sinner comes before the saint. It's by uh, um, the literary historian Kevin Birmingham, who is joining us from his home in Boston today. Uh, Kevin, welcome. So I have Thank to you ask you me. the same question I asked Alexandra. Dostoevsky or Turgenev? I, I assume the answer <laughs> is the D word. Clearly Dostoevsky. Uh, usually the question I hear people ask is Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. And, uh, you know, my sense of understanding both of those writers is that uh, Tolstoy is a writer who tends to write from the outside in, and Dostoevsky is a writer who writes from the inside out. I think part of the reason why people think of Dostoevsky as being relevant today, as relevant today as he was 150 years ago, is that he's a writer of irrationality, a writer of dark impulses, a writer of uh, uh, perverse desires and of uh, fever dreams and hallucinations. And I think anyone who's lived through the last year and a half of this pandemic has seen a sort of uh, uh, outburst of Dostoevskyan passions, uh, the sorts of irrationality and spitefulness that is very familiar to Dostoevsky's readers. Yeah, uh, I, I, I would guess that for, for Dostoevsky, uh, COVID would have been a minor inconvenience uh, given, given the drama of his life. Um, I see your point on Tolstoy, but there is an interesting comparison as well with Turgenev in terms of the fact that both men were from the Russian 
aristocracy, and yet their literature is so profoundly different, isn't it? Yeah, they're from both ends of the uh, Russian aristocracy. Dostoevsky was from the the lower end of uh, that ladder, and Turgenev was uh, quite wealthy. And so when Dostoevsky was just getting his start, and he met Turgenev uh, for the first time, he was uh, flattered that Turgenev took an interest in him. As time went on, he came to resent the fact that Unlike Turgenev and Tolstoy, he did not have a, an estate of hundreds of serfs upon which he could rely. So he had to write in order to make ends meet. He was not independently wealthy. And he felt that that forced him to write more quickly than he wanted to, and that his novels would, uh, would suffer as a result. Uh, he referred to himself as a proletarian writer. That's probably going a bit too far. But uh, there was a certain uh, amount of jealousy uh, and envy and, of course, competition that uh, Russian novelists uh, had with one another. And Turgenev was certainly one of those people. Yeah, reading your book, um, the, uh, the Sinner and the Saint, it really reminded me of how hard a life for a minor aristocrat writing was. I mean, he went through hell to write his books, worse than hell. Uh, and it reminded me of the fate of a lot of 19th century writers. He's often spoken about in the same breath as Balzac. We'll talk a little bit about France and, and French literature. Mm -hmm. What these guys did was, in, in the context of early 21st century, was astonishing, wasn't it? I mean, it's hard to imagine any writer today coming close to the kind of torment and upheaval and suffering, physical, emotional, financial, that Dostoevsky went through. Dostoevsky had uh, an incredible life, even among the incredible lives of 19th century Russian writers. He was celebrated as Russia's up-and-coming novelist at the tender age of 24. But by the age of 28, he was woken up before dawn by the Tsar's uh, secret police and arrested. He was uh, brought before a, uh, a firing squad where he was in line uh, to be in front of a firing squad. Uh, in the middle of a, a square in St. Petersburg uh, to be executed. And at the last minute, the Tsar uh, announced, the Tsar's envoy announced that uh, uh, the Tsar was going to grant clemency upon uh, these uh, many criminals. And instead of being executed, he was going to be sent to Siberia. So he spent four years in a, a hard labor uh, prison camp and then five more years in the uh, uh, Siberian army. So he experienced quite amount, uh, an, an incredible amount of hardship. He was addicted to gambling that uh, uh, compounded his problems. He had- uh, He even borrowed from Turgenev, yeah? I'm sorry? He borrowed from Turgenev, didn't he? Or he borrowed from everyone he could. He borrowed from everyone he could, but uh, yes, Turgenev he reached out to several times because he knew Turgenev was frequenting the same uh, casinos that he was and thought that Turgenev as a fellow gambler would sympathize with uh, his plight. Dostoevsky was uh, addicted to roulette and uh, like most addicts was not very good at uh, keeping his shirt. He had to pawn his clothing, he had to pawn his uh, jewelry and he would and even one point, I think you remind us in the book he had to pawn his wife's underwear but let, let's let's talk about this book um, Kevin that you've written The Sinner and the Saint. It's not um it's not just a book on Dostoevsky. It's a book about one of Dostoevsky's books, which, of course, most is perhaps the most famous of all the books, uh, 
crime and punishment. You you mentioned that he got sent off to Siberia after this right. near death kind of uh, mock execution. Um, and, and you suggest in the book that it was in Siberia that he learned what it was like to murder someone. He, he, he spent time, perhaps for the first time in his life, he spent time with hardcore criminals. Is that, do you think that the, um, is that one of the main messages in The Sinner and the Saint, that it was his experiences in Siberia that represent the kind of empirical foundations for crime and punishment? Uh, it was the beginning of his uh, intense interest in true crime and in hearing about crimes from uh, murderers themselves. Uh, it changed the way he wrote. It changed the way he thought. Uh, it it changed his entire career. Basically, every novel and story that we read from Dostoevsky today was written after Siberia rather than before it. Uh, he was imprisoned with uh, multiple murderers and was seeking out their stories. He had uh, a morbid curiosity. That curiosity was insatiable. And what interested him most was the details of murder, the, what it felt like to murder someone, what violence was like, what it felt like uh, to be a victim of violence as well. Uh, many of his Prison mates were, uh, were flogged, were beaten, uh, received corporal punishment, and he kept asking them over and over again, what does it feel like to be beaten with these canes? What does it feel like to have these scars on your back? Uh, he was not a violent person himself, but he could not resist the temptation to imagine, it, imagine what violence like that would be like. Was there um, a, perhaps not so much... Uh an erotic but a, a spiritual element to his interest in violence. Of course, uh, the Marquis de Sade uh, uh, pioneered the idea of violence and sex. This was something that preoccupied a lot of 19th and early 20th century writers. But what laid beyond or beneath the violence for Dostoevsky, do you think? Well, there is an element to Dostoevsky's writing that connects suffering to holiness and to spirituality. That is through suffering uh, that we can find salvation and that it is through, for example, the suffering of Christ that uh, uh, sinners on earth can find salvation. At the same time, the ultimate message of crime and punishment is that however much you might want to philosophize uh, violence or the act of murder, or of being good. Uh, ultimately, goodness is a feeling rather than a philosophy. And all the philosophies built on top of this perverse interest in violence are meaningless. And the thing that Dostoevsky wanted to explore was the perverse allure of destruction for its own sake, destroying or killing someone uh, for no reason whatsoever. That was at the heart of crime and punishment. If, you know, some of uh, your viewers or your listeners, you know, may have read Crime and Punishment recently. If you, they have. If they haven't, they shouldn't be listening to this show. Okay. <laughs> if you finish Crime and Punishment thinking that Raskolnikov has killed a pawnbroker and her sister for philosophical purposes, then Raskolnikov has eluded being captured by you, by the reader. Uh, because all of the philosophical justifications that he trots out 
uh, over the course of the novel are really covering up the uh, impulse, as he puts it to Sonia, his love interest in the novel, the impulse to take everything by the tail uh, and whisk it off to the devil, the impulse to destroy for the exhilaration and sense of freedom that comes from destroying. Uh, it's not at all rational, but it's something that uh, Dostoevsky himself felt, and it's something that he wanted to explore, and it's something that he found in the murderers that he uh, spoke to uh, while he was in Siberia, and uh, the murderers that he read about uh, in newspapers. Kevin, you note in the beginning of the book that um, you, you, you quote the, the Russian literary theorist Mikhail Mikhailovich Bakhtin and, uh, as, as Dostoevsky as a writer of polyphonic novels. Um, and of course, you just brought up Raskolnikov, the perhaps the greatest of all, or certainly the most famous of all um, Dostoevsky's fictional inventions, the central character in Crime and Punishment. Is Raskolnikov a polyphonic character? How would you describe uh, his nature? Um, I th so a polyphonic uh, character for Bakhtin or a polyphonic novelist is someone for whom uh, the voices of the novel are completely independent of an overriding authorial voice. For Bakhtin reading Dostoevsky, there was something different about the voices in his novel than in the voices of so many other people. He thought of them as inhabiting their own universes and being fully fleshed out and independent in a way that was not true for other novelists, where you could sort of feel the authorial voice controlling the uh, the characters' voices in other novels. I do think there's something magnetic about the voice of uh, Raskolnikov. I think he took that voice or developed it partly from uh, his novella Notes from Underground, which also has... Right. Which is my... Uh, I used to teach classes around Notes from the Underground, such a remarkable book. It it's is. Shorter, of course, and more manageable than Crime and Punishment. Yes. And uh, what the dramatic center of it, I mean, Dostoevsky was trying to figure out, my book is a lot about how Crime and Punishment came to be, what the right. creative process was about the making of this book, how it began as an idea for basically a long story, and how it developed into the novel that it is today. When Dostoevsky first started writing it, he imagined it as being a confession uh, told well after the fact of crimes, these crimes, uh, by a murderer. Uh, that first person voice didn't quite work, wasn't working for him. Then he thought of it as being um, something that was taking place on the stand, that he was confessing it orally. Uh, but he couldn't make that work either. And he ultimately settled upon a perspective that is just slightly removed from Raskolnikov's perspective, so that we're hovering over his shoulder as he walks up the staircase to the apartment where he's going to kill a pawnbroker. We experience the fever dreams that he experiences. We are hallucinating the way he hallucinates. So we get all of the confusion that Raskolnikov feels without actually being inside uh, Raskolnikov's head. So uh, it's an intimate third person perspective. And the voice of the narrator sometimes 
delves into or gets interwoven with the voice and the thoughts of the character, but is never quite singularly that character's voice. And it's the duality of that that was important. Dostoevsky was always thinking uh, in terms of uh, dualities and multiplicities rather than singularities. All right. So, but in addition, um, in your book, uh, The Saint and the Sinner, the two main characters, of course, are Dostoevsky himself and Raskolnikov. There's a third character. The subtitle of the book uh, is uh, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. And this was something I didn't know anything about. Um, You suggest that in part it may have been inspired by uh, a French gentleman, a man called Pierre-Francois uh, Lacanaire. Tell me about this Lacanaire and how Lacanaire. he was influenced by him. I apologize for the pronunciation. Yes, yeah, Lacanaire. So my book tells uh, two stories. It goes back and forth between Dostoevsky's life as he's emerging as a writer and as he's starting to um, uh, write books like Crime and Punishment and especially Crime and Punishment. But it also interweaves the story of uh, a murderer in Paris in the 1830s named Pierre-Francois Lacanaire. Lassenaire was uh, handsome, he was uh, eloquent, he was uh, uh, debonair, he was well-spoken, he was well-educated, and this was the first thing that was surprising to Dostoevsky when he read about uh, Lassenaire's case. What people are normally trained to think of when they think of murderers, at least in the middle of the 19th century, was that murderers were uneducated and they were of the lower class. But here was someone who was completely different. He was from a petty bourgeois family. They were quite wealthy uh, in the iron industry and in uh, silks, but eventually uh, uh, went bankrupt before Lassenaire uh, came of age. So uh, he felt as if he'd been robbed of, of his estate. The other thing that captivated Dostoevsky is that there was a celebrity that sprung up around Lassenaire. So his crime spree included the double murder of uh, a former prison mate of his and his widowed mother. And the murder weapons were an ax and a sharpened file. And what was astonishing to Dostoevsky is that Lassenaire was completely willing to confess to his crimes. And he seemed not to really care very much about the fact that he had done them. He showed no remorse, no feeling at all for his victims. He would be called what we would think of today as a sociopath. But the most important thing is that instead of being universally reviled for this behavior, many Parisians were captivated by his charm. He was in prison for several weeks and received multiple visitors. People were writing him letters, they were sending him gifts, they were writing him poems, they were asking him to correspond with them. Uh, Women were attending his trial in droves, wanting to get a glimpse of him. He was writing his memoirs in between the time of his trial and his execution by guillotine. And in that short period, it was probably about uh, two months, he wrote as much as he could and he presented himself as a uh, sort of Robin Hood figure where he was a criminal for the people. He claimed to be committing these acts of murder in order to right the wrongs of an unjust society. Yeah, you, um, one of the characters um, in this show who comes up all the time is the French writer and philosopher, Swiss French writer and philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the author, of course, of The Social Contract, many of other books. We talked about him earlier this week. And you suggest that 
there's a Rousseauan element to uh, Laconaire, or at least was there was a perception that, that Rousseau's notion of being born un, uh, born free and then becoming unhappy, which is the essence yeah. of the social contract, is somehow articulated in political form, and that's how it came to Dostoevsky. Uh, when Lassenaire's crimes were recounted, uh, partly through trial testimony, one of the things that the newspapers at the time seized upon was an unusual detail that took place just before one of the murder attempts. And that was that Lassenaire was waiting for his victim to come up to an apartment. And as he was waiting, he was languidly reading uh, the social contract. Now, the cue that this sent to many people at the time, and remember, we're talking about uh, 1835 Paris, was that uh, here was uh, an indication of Lassenaire as someone who was a revolutionary, someone who was uh, opposed to the king, someone who was uh, a Republican in nature, and someone who was uh, had was there was a specter of. Uh, revolutionary violence in what was ultimately just um, savage violence. And that sense of a revolutionary uh, violent act was, uh, was increased by the fact that he wrote poems that were uh, uh, critical of the king and did seem to have a, uh, a hostile uh, attitude towards authority in general, the king, the pope, his father, uh, everyone. It's not possible, of course, to talk about uh, Kevin crime and punishment without bringing up the N-word, uh, nihilism. Um, <laughs> you, you talk a lot about the Russian tradition of nihilism and the idea of nihilism in a European context in the 19th century. What in your mind does the word mean? And, and was Dostoevsky a nihilist or was he writing... Um, to remind people of the dangers of nihilism? Or is he politically a little bit confused? It's always hard to put Dostoevsky in any political camp. And everyone kind of claims him and everyone rejects him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was writing Crime and Punishment to uh, oppose nihilism. And, you know, at the time, I guess to bring the discussion back to Turgenev, Turgenev was the writer who popularized the term nihilism. Uh, in his novel, um, uh, Fathers and Children. And what the term meant was that if you were a nihilist, you were someone who would not take anything on faith, that anything that you would accept to be true would be something that you would take uh, only through your own empirical senses, that uh, faith was uh, not something that you believed in. So anything that wasn't uh, 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 verified by your senses, you could just wipe away, you could destroy. That included, in some cases, uh, God for some people. It included uh, uh, the divine right of a king. It included many uh, abstractions. And for Dostoevsky, when he looked at the nihilists, and this was a younger generation of radicals who were coming of age when he was in his 40s, and they were in their 20s, you have to remember that Dostoevsky was coming back from Siberia after he had uh, been jailed for his own youthful uh, radicalism. Though for him, the radicalism was in a way somewhat moderate. He was opposed to serfdom. He was critical of the fact that serfdom was still an institution that was supporting the Russian empire. And when the czar's spies found out that he was making critical statements about 
serfdom, uh, that's what got him sent to Siberia. When he came back from Siberia in the 1860s, the 1860s was the time of a real revolutionary fervor uh, in Russia. It was really just starting to, uh, to heat up. The nihilists were trying to go much, much further than getting rid of serfdom. They wanted to get rid of czars altogether. Many were trying to think about how they can rebuild Russian society from the ground up, whether that was through socialism or through democracy or some combination of the two. Um, and what he saw when he looked at the nihilists were, were people that he described as, as wanting to build a paradise on a tabula rasa. And there are two elements to that. The first is that there is something noble about wanting to build a paradise, even if it's wrongheaded, because you're never going to achieve it. However, for somebody with a, a deeply religious sensibility. Yes, that's right. We are a fallen uh, people. Paradise will never be created on earth, and we have to accept that to some degree. What he also saw in the nihilists was that the tabula rasa, the wiping away of everything, was also a part of their joy, something that they took pleasure in doing, that wiping away all of Russia's institutions with it, which they thought were corrupt was part of the pleasure, that wiping away tradition was part of the pleasure, that destroying the landowning classes was part of the pleasure. And he wanted to create a character for whom the paradise is very vague, like what Raskolnikov wants to do with this money that he's going to take from the pawnbroker is not clear at all, ever, and that's intentional. But the thing that is clear is this destruction, this urge for destruction uh, and to kill. He can't face it in himself that he wants to kill for the sake of killing, and so he erects this uh, elaborate structure, philosophical structure that, uh, that pretends to be uh, altruism in one form or another, particularly utilitarianism. Yeah, he's not a big fan of uh, utilitarianism. He's perhaps one of the most profound critics with, with Nietzsche. Um, yesterday, uh, Kevin, we did a, it's a very different kind of book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity mm -hmm. uh, with David Graeber, a guy who died who's perhaps America's most famous anarchist. And when I was looking at your book I was uh, and, and thinking about crime and punishment, I was thinking about the Russian tradition of anarchism and of course of, of Bakunin and perhaps Russia has been more influential in the development of late 19th century anarchist thought than anyone. Marx hated the anarchists. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Dostoevsky in an odd kind of way was himself an anarchist? He was very much interested in uh, free will and in the fact that free will exists. Uh, part of the reason why he was pressing the idea so much is because the notion of human beings as having free will was very much under attack at the time. It was under attack primarily by uh, a new wave of uh, scientific discovery and a new wave uh, of thinking about physiology. So uh, a lot of scientists at the time were doing experiments on frogs to determine that you know electrical impulses are responsible for the various movements uh, that you know frogs' legs would would have and uh, some scientists and pseudoscientists and philosophers were spinning this idea out in order to draw a picture of human nature as uh, uh, being purely materialist, that to be a human was basically to be a pleasure-maximizing machine. Your job was to create the greatest happiness for yourself and to reproduce future versions of you, and that's how people uh, evolve, that's how uh, species evolve, and that's it. There's no 
real free will. You can't uh, get out of this uh, biological uh, machinery. For Dostoevsky, this was completely false. Uh, he thought that people do things that destroy their own pleasure all the time. He thought that people work at cross purposes all the time. He thought that people were spiteful, that they would spite themselves. He thought that there was no singularity to people, that people were uh, effectively mysteries unto themselves. Uh, this doesn't exactly make him an anarchist, but he was uh, pretty well attuned to some of the proto-anarchist thinking that was circulating at the time, particularly the, uh, the words of uh, Max Stirner, uh, whose book, The Ego and His Own, was, uh, was circulating uh, in the 1840s and 50s uh, in, in St. Petersburg. And the ideas were at first somewhat inspiring, but then ultimately appalling. Uh, Kevin, um, your book, one of the nice things about the book is it, 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 fit, it, it creates a narrative of um, Dostoevsky's literary career and reminds readers like myself, who aren't experts on Dostoevsky, that crime and punishment marked a kind of new beginning, um, uh, the, the sort of the beginnings of his really great literary output. I, I wonder how you fit crime and punishment in with the with the other classics, the idiot, and particularly the brothers Karazimov, you 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 suggest in your book that brothers Karazimov is the is his literary magnum opus. I think that he was becoming uh, more and more ambitious as as time went on, and I think he was successful at that. I think part of the reason why he was becoming more ambitious is because he was reacting to to Tolstoy. Uh, now Tolstoy and Dostoevsky did not know one another, they never met, but they admired one another from afar. And when Crime and Punishment was being serialized in the Russian Herald in 1866, readers who picked up the Russian Herald and opened it and were reading Crime and Punishment could turn just a few pages later and start to read portions of War and Peace. So they were among the luckiest subscribers in you know, the history of, uh, of big magazines. Crime and Punishment and War and Peace are in a way side by side. Once War and Peace was finished, I think Dostoevsky was able to see how far the novel as a, uh, as a genre, as a form, I should say, um, could go. And one of the exciting things about Russian novels at the time is that the form felt fresh and it felt as if there were new territories to be explored all the time. For Dostoevsky, it was ultimately the territory of consciousness that, uh, uh, that inspired him. And Tolstoy saw this himself. When he talked about crime and punishment years later after the publication, he said that, you know, this is not a book about a murder. It's a book about how one young man, uh, well, long before the mur murders take place, is doing something very small, sipping tea, smoking a cigarette, and his consciousness takes a very small turn, and that small turn leads down a treacherous path that takes him to uh, an old pawnbroker's apartment with an ax in his hand, and that that is both the power and the terror of, of consciousness. You talk about literary form, Kevin. Some people will be familiar with um, your first book, uh, The Most Dangerous Book, the battle for James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, Joyce, of course, was writing about 100 years after uh, Dostoevsky, writing at a time where perhaps the form of the novel had run its course. 
I know this is a bit of a stupid question, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, <laughs> if Dostoevsky had been born 100 years later in 1921 as opposed to 1821 and was preoccupied with the same form, what kind of books would he have written? Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's difficult. Well, first, it's difficult to imagine him um, uh, being any, any other type of artist other than a novelist, because... Well, yeah, no, novelist, I mean, he, would have, he still would have written a novel, but in a sense, he was lucky to be writing at a time when the novel still had that freshness. It, it's hard to imagine him just yes. writing another novel. He was pushing the boundaries of the novel at a time when that was possible. Yeah. I can see how he uh, uh, might have thought of himself as uh, he did have a, a cinematographic imagination to some degree, and you know a lot of the drama in *Crime and Punishment* is this uh, this sort of tango between uh, Raskolnikov, a uh, a murderer who has not yet been caught, and a of uh, an inspector named Porfiry Petrovich. And it's a back and forth where the inspector doesn't have any evidence. And so because he has no evidence, can only trap Raskolnikov if he can force Raskolnikov to confess. And the question hovering over much of the novel is whether or not uh, he will extract that confession. Uh, there is something, I think, cinematic about a lot of those scenes and I can see him trying to do something uh with film but it's uh it's there's so much that's that's difficult or impossible to film uh effectively that uh you know you can't help but feel lucky that Dostoevsky was born at the time in which he was born because he was perfectly suited for for this form as it was coming of age what are the great movies of crime and punishment. Uh, one could have imagined Tarkovsky making one, but he didn't. Yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, I haven't watched any film adaptations of crime and punishment, and I'm sort of not eager uh, to do so. Even though you're suggesting that there's a cinematic quality to his writing. What about the comparison with Joyce? I'm sure everyone's asking you that, given you've just written a major book on Dostoevsky, and your first book mm -hmm. was about Joyce. How do these guys compare? Is there are there similarities or are they such different experiences, writers, personalities from different worlds that they're not comparable? You can easily see uh, Dostoevsky as a forerunner to Joyce, as someone who was using the interiority of consciousness, the, the, uh, the importance, the centrality of consciousness uh, for a story. And that in doing so, he made it easier for a book like Ulysses to um, take place. You know, we talked earlier uh, about uh, uh, Bakhtin and uh, the polyphonic uh, novel and how the, the, the characteristic of uh, a novel like that is that there are multiple voices that uh, are all jostling for authority and mm -hmm. none of those voices actually has any full authority. That is something that very much happens in a book like Ulysses where instead of just uh, a handful of voices, uh, which is what we have in Crime and Punishment, we suddenly have 40 or 50 voices and in each episode of Ulysses, there's a new set of voices that takes over. And it's almost as if Joyce is trying to take this logic or this experiment, this experiment to, to its extreme. 
and once he does it, it's followed to it's it's very difficult to to keep going any further with it. And so, there's a good reason why we don't have more books like Ulysses. It's because it uh, it represented sort of apex or simultaneously maybe uh, the end of uh, a certain road uh, for the for the forum. Well, Kevin Birmingham, the author of The Sa Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murder, who inspired a masterpiece, a tremendous book, Kevin. I like your first book. I'm sure it's going to win lots of prizes. It's already getting some excellent reviews from some of the top newspapers and reviewers. So congratulations on that. You're talking to me, as I said at the beginning, from Boston, from your home. In addition to your new book, The Sinner and the Saint, what else should people be reading in our Dostoevskian times? I think if uh, you are uh, rusty with your uh, Dostoevsky or if you uh, haven't read Dostoevsky at all and want to know if it's something that you want to pursue, uh, the best bang for your buck is probably the, the novella we mentioned earlier, uh, Notes from Underground, which is really in, in my... I think I'm not alone when I say this, but uh, many people would probably say that this is the uh, first very rough draft for Crime and Punishment. He was starting to um, to think about what a criminal voice, a, um, a beleaguered, uh, torn voice, how it would speak. When you read Notes from Underground, the whole first section, nothing happens. It's really just a voice talking. And it's as if Dostoevsky is setting himself the task of thinking, how long can a story be sustained without anything happening? How long can a voice talking to itself be gripping by itself? And uh, he took that to, I think, as far as he could take it. It was, you know, a couple uh, a dozen pages. Uh, it was so bizarre when it came out that no one reviewed it. There were no reviews of uh, Notes from Underground because no one knew what to do with it exactly. Dostoevsky be began to harness the, that power, the power of that voice, and he changed it uh, in Crime and Punishment. And that's part of what makes it such a great novel. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh notes uh the underground man now of course is ubiquitous uh he has another name he's the online man all you need to do is go on twitter or any of the other social networks and you're surrounded by the the underground men and they are seem to be all men of our age so there's something very prescient about dostoevsky um and uh, it's a lovely book the saint uh the the sinner and the saint uh by uh kevin uh, birmingham thank you again kevin great stuff yeah. really interesting uh, hope Thank you so much for having me. Show don't take too long on your next book because we need accessible books on great literature and great writers like yourself. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I 
develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.